Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged, the cycling podcast that's not afraid of a tangent or a detour. Speaking of which, today I'm joined by a rider who has just taken a bit of a tangent in his road racing career, just nipping off road to win the UCI Gravel World Championships. As you do, I'm talking about Matej Mohoric. Now, what else can I tell you about Matej? Well, He's a Slovenian man, a nation that's really enjoying some cycling success in recent times, and we talk a little bit about that. He's been the junior and under-23 World Road Race champion, but never got to wear the rainbow bands. Stay tuned to find out why. He's also just won the UCI Gravel World Championships, a race he didn't expect to be in contention for, which is pretty interesting, and we discuss whether he'll get to wear the rainbow bands off-road on the gravelly bits next season. Of course, he rides for the World Tour team Bahrain Victorious and bagged himself another Tour de France victory last July when he beat friend of the pod Kasper Asgren to the line on stage 19, followed by a memorably humble post-race interview, and that's on the menu for discussion today as well. We also chat a little bit about how his team came to terms with the loss of their much-loved teammate Gino Maida, and Matty speaks from the heart with great sincerity on that sensitive topic. So it's a really textured chat with one of the loveliest and most honest riders in the pro peloton. Now, if you haven't already made yourself comfortable, it's time to do it, folks, because this is the Mate Mohoric episode. You know it's that time again. Podcast. Matej Moric is just 29 years old, but he's been a World Tour rider for nearly 10 years now, picking up an impressive Palmares along the way. He's won stages at all three Grand Tours. He's also got three rainbow jerseys in his wardrobe, consecutive junior and under-23 World Road Championships 10 years ago. And just a couple of weeks ago, he won the UCI World Gravel Championships. His win at Milan San Remo in 2022 was a hot topic at the time because he used a dropper seat post to descend like a demon and take victory on the Via Roma. Now, it should come as no surprise then that he grew up riding off-road. But does he know which animal's hair sieves were made from in 19th century crown? There's only one way to find out, folks. Check it out. Well, Mate, I've just got a text from you. Thank you very much. So we are now connected, should <laughs> should the worst happen, mate. But thanks very much for joining us, Mate, on, on, uh, on Matt Stevens Unplugged. It's lovely to see you. Can you just tell us where in the world you are? For anybody that's listening today, just describe where you are. So I've just uh, come home to Slovenia. I had a nice uh, reception the other day. Uh, I was about, I was here to to visit my children, but yeah, I stayed uh, for a couple of more couple more days, and tomorrow I go uh, move on to to Austria for a nice vacation in the Alps. Oh, very nice, mate. Very nice. So you're actually at home now, then? Uh, not at my home. Yeah, my children's home. It's a little bit complicated situation. Oh, okay. I live in Monaco. My kids live in Slovenia, but yes. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So, would you mind just describing the room that you're in as well? We just like people to get a sense of exactly where people are, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the the master bedroom uh, because I want to hide away from uh, from other people in the house uh, doing chores and the kids uh, messing around <laughs> and stuff like this. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, well Mate, wonderful to have you on the pod. Season's ended. I'm still actually commentating on the final race, the Tour of Huangxi, but your your season ended with an amazing victory in the Gravel World Championships. And I was just watching it back this morning. Um, can you just, before we move on to the rest of your career and looking back a little bit, because the Gravel World Championships is clearly so fresh in your mind, 
just tell me what prep you did for that and actually at what point you decided in the season that you wanted to ride it as well because it doesn't look from your calendar that you did any other gravel racing at all unless you did it you know, uh, without us knowing what, what was your preparation so the preparation started when I was uh, six years old and I uh, got my first uh, my first bicycle I grew up in the mountains and uh, these roads uh, were all I knew no, for a long long time before I started uh, with road cycling when I was uh, 12 years old so uh, I grew up on uh, in the woods uh, on gravel gravel roads single trails all that sort of stuff uh, we had a farm at home my parents had a farm and I had them uh, almost every day and uh, I rode my bike to, to to everywhere to the to the meadows to the to the woods to the forest um, and when I was free, uh, we also uh, met with, with the other boys from the village and uh, we went up higher in the mountains to, to do the descents full gas. We built, we were building jumps and gaps and all, all that sort of stuff before I even started road cycling. So that's where my preparation started. And then my preparation ended when I was about, I'd say, 18 years old, because since then, I uh, didn't spend so much time <laughs> on any other uh, bike apart from my road bike. I do have a very nice Merida 120 uh, mountain bike, which I use, I'd say, on average uh, one time a week, maybe less during season and more during uh, during the, the easier periods of training. Uh, because uh, when I, uh, yeah, now I, I live in Monaco, there I only have my road bike, but if I come to visit my children here in Slovenia, uh, I also do keep uh, a mountain bike here. And uh, sometimes I do pop even in Monaco, uh, wider wider tires on my, on my road bike and uh, do some training off-road as well on a modified, I would say, uh, not a proper gravel bike, but a modified road bike. Uh, especially before the classic season to get a feel for uh, for the off-road stuff but yeah I didn't I did I never raced off-road I wished to start practice mountain biking when I was 12 um, it was much easier to start uh, doing road cycling and then I was told yeah just start with the road and then you can move move away from the road to mountain bike later on when you when you grow up of course that didn't happen uh, <laughs> uh, obviously but my heart was always uh, I always liked off-road I really love to, to to spend time training on the on the gravel bike now that I have one and uh, on my mountain bike as well so uh, yeah it's a little bit uh, it warms my heart uh, but yeah obviously because uh, being a successful uh, racer on the road I didn't necessarily want to spend time and energy or uh, I wouldn't say not allowed, but not expected to spend time and energy uh, in the off-road racing. So uh, this year in the winter or last year in the winter before we started our preps for uh, 2023, Merida came came to us and asked me if I was up to, to starting in the Gravel World Championships. Uh, they told me they are about to release their uh, a new uh, a new model of their Silex bike, uh, which is uh, their bestseller, uh, their best-selling bike. Uh, so it's uh, quite important for them. Yeah. And they wanted for it to be present, for the new model to be present at the Gravel World Championships. And uh, they thought I was the best candidate uh, from our team to do so. And I was immediately up for it, up for the idea. 
of course, if you offer me an alternative to finish racing with uh, Lombardia, which is which ends up being every year a little bit too hard for my uh, for my characteristics. Okay. Uh, there's one climb too much at the end uh, to close the season down with a nice off-road experience uh, without any pressure to deliver a result whatsoever. Uh, it was uh, it was a love of a love in the first sight. So yeah, I was immediately up for it, and they actually delivered the bike quite late because it was a prototype. Okay. Uh, the week before the race, and I had a couple of rides. I was immediately in love with the bike because it's quite different to a road bike. It's not just a road bike with wider tires. It has longer wheelbase, uh, sort of a mountain bike geometry with a higher front end and stuff like this. So yeah. uh, a little bit of a different bike, a proper, proper gravel machine, uh, obviously with also the bolts for bike packing and stuff to fit fenders and so on, but uh, I didn't use those <laughs> in, in the gravel world. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice any saddlebags on there or anything. You didn't need any no. of those. Especially I had a saddlebag. I had a saddlebag. <laughs> okay, okay. But not a proper one when you can fit tent inside. Definitely not. I mean, you clearly, I mean, it's lovely to see you smiling about that race. I mean, I was, I was watching it back, as I said, I watched the last 20 odd kilometers. Um, super, super technical. Looks, it looks so brutally hilly as well. Um, but you were really, really, really pushing it on those corners, weren't you, mate? I mean, you looked like you were having fun. It, from what you said, it kind of felt like you were almost in in the woods back when you were like a ten year old, just flying down yeah. the descents. You know, but at that point, you didn't actually know what the time check was because you were always looking around as well. It looked like it was quite stressful the final fifteen or twenty k's for you. So uh, what happened was uh, I was finally allowed to race off-road and I was not going to let that opportunity escape. No? So if I, if I am allowed to go off-road and race uh, uh, one day no? by, my, uh, by my team, by, by our partners, no? then uh, I'm surely going to make the most of it. No? So I was just <laughs> super happy to, to take in this experience. Um, I uh, I wanted to enjoy my day on the bike. I reconned the course uh, the days before and I loved it. It was a perfect mix of everything. Um, there was some asphalting, but it was just to connect the the very technical gravel sections. Sure. Uh, and the gravel was not smooth, was not like Strade Bianca. Okay, some sections, yes, but most sections had uh, quite like a lot of corners in. So... I would say from 170 kilometers of that race, um, maybe only 15 kilometers uh, were uh, such that you benefited from drafting or from staying second or third wheel instead sure. of pulling. And all the rest was so technical that you were better off um, making the tempo than sitting on the wheel. Sure. Um, so it was a proper, proper gravel world championships. It's not like you could employ road tactics uh, or anything like that. It was just about surviving yeah. uh, without crash, without a puncture um, and being the strongest because, yeah, uh, it was, if you ride on your own or in a group, it didn't change much. It actually, a group could only potentially slow you down sure. most of the time. So, and in the start, I saw Wout and I, I saw that he was nervous and I was like, Wout, why are you, why are you nervous? You will, you're about to become a world champion now. And he was like, yeah, I I don't know, you know, in cyclocross, we have we have more grass and sand and uh, mud. So it's just about pure power and line. And here you have uh, also sharp edges and rocks and uh, 
single trails and it's more technical and you are more likely to puncture and that sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about here? Like you have a lot of the most off-road experience here apart from the mountain bike guys. Yeah. And uh, I also thought in my mind that I will have no chance against these guys, against the best mountain bikers and uh, the cyclocross riders and the road riders with the cyclocross background on the technical and rough terrain uh, stuff, no? Because I did watch plenty of mountain bike and cyclocross races before, and I always thought, oh, I think I could do this as well, you know, from the technical uh, side of stuff. But then I was like, the other, the more rational part of my brain was like, what are you talking about? These guys do this their whole lives. So you have no chance. Because also sometimes in Slovenia, especially when I was younger, I did ride with the proper mountain bikers, the ones who do enduro and downhill right. before, but they always, the bastards always take me to their local trails <laughs> and they know every stone, you know? So I sometimes, sometimes struggle to stay on the wheel and they always say, oh, you're crazy for a road race and it's not possible, no? We can't drop you. But then sometimes they did uh, manage to distance me on the descents and I was like, ah, I couldn't do what they do, you know, it's too risky, no? But then they know the course in detail and it's different. And in the Gravel World Championships, at first, in the start, if you ask me for an honest answer, I would say I have, I thought I had no chance on the on the technical stuff. But then as soon as we started, we hit the first technical sections. I was like, oh, actually, you know what? Uh, let me check if I have enough gels in my pockets, if I have enough bottles, if I have everything I need, because I think today I have a, an honest chance because I thought, I felt like I was gaining, um, gaining uh, energy or losing less energy on the technical stuff than the others. Okay. Uh, I could let the wheel go a little bit and uh, waste a lot less energy pedaling trying to get back than I thought others were doing. So. I felt really, really comfortable and really, 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 really good. And I knew f straight from the start, the week before already, that my shape is probably the best it's ever been this year. Uh, I've been like that since a little kid, actually, that I always performed uh, the best in the autumn. Uh, so it was not something new, but I knew that my shape was probably probably even better than at the tour. So I knew that wow. leg-wise, I was in a in a good place. So I didn't fear about that, or I just wanted to take advantage of that as much as I could. And as I realized that also technically, um, I, I feel comfortable. Then I knew the last 40 kilometers being that hard will uh, play in my favor. So uh, Actually, I got a little bit nervous then. <laughs> I was super relaxed before the start, but then I was like, oh, maybe I can become a world champion here. <laughs> I, I, I guess going into it, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The contrast, the, the pressure that clearly was on the shoulders of, wow, very, very nervous because everybody was looking at him, including yourself. But you go in there relatively relaxed. There's no real pressure from any external places apart from the bike manufacturer wanting you to try the bike out and then you find yourself in this winning position just describe though those though the last couple of descent on that little right hander where you crashed on on the hay bale because you took a lot of speed into that corner <laughs> looking back because it was on a little bit of tarmac and i saw you bank over and i didn't i hadn't realized you'd crashed before and then your back wheel went but luckily you're up straight away but um how was that because you were constantly looking around. I was looking around because I was trying to hold uh, something back in case of a puncture. Sure. Because you never know, no? And I really, really, the whole day I worked so hard because I knew when the selection was made and it was just me, Connor, and, um, and Florian that it's quite likely that we take all the medals, no? So a medal was... 
if the gap was big enough, we were basically guaranteed a medal uh, bare from, for a proper mechanical or a big, big puncture that you couldn't sure. fix easily. Um, so we were all, I felt we were all working pretty hard to extend that lead to m- make it more comfortable in case of, uh, of, uh, of a misfortune. And uh, as I dropped Florian uh, on the second last climb, I didn't like properly attack him. I just kind of rode away steadily because I was still thinking about the fact that the course was about 6,000 kilojoules, which is a lot. So I yeah. knew at, at one point I will hit a wall. I will uh, run out of my glycogen stores. And I knew others would as well. Uh, they probably did so before I did uh, because they were bigger and stronger and uh, heavier, which makes you yeah, uh, lose more energy than, than I did. Um, and uh, I was trying to understand where he was to see if I have sufficient gap to try to pace a little bit more comfortably. Sure. So in case I had a puncture or something, I, I was hoping that I could re-accelerate again and try to get back to Florian as soon as I could and try to yeah, distance him again or or just have as much time as I could to to, to play to, to if, in case if anything uh, happens, you know. And uh, also the, the motorbike, the, 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 the rider who was, the guy who was uh, filming uh, the race, he was actually, uh, I was told he was an Italian enduro champion. Yeah, he must have, he was bikes, pulling it nicely on the descent, yeah. man. He was pretty close, you know. <laughs> and he, he had a GoPro, no? and uh, at, at points it seemed, he was so quiet, the, the motorbike is so quiet, that at points it seemed like uh, a rider came back to you. That's why I was ah. uh, sometimes looking back over ah, my shoulder okay. to see that explains it. See what's happening, and and then if I saw that there was a point in the course where you could see quite far back, that's where I tried to turn around to see if I still have those. Uh, yeah, you could see back probably forty seconds or so. So I I turned around to see if I still have those forty seconds advantage or not. Because if I saw Florian then I would have probably tried to, to accelerate and uh, put some more time between us. Uh, and when I crashed in that uh, corner, 3K to go, it was actually in the recon. I went the, the longer way around, uh, sort of the way you should. And here I saw you could cut, but I didn't remember the pole in the middle of the bridge. And sure. that surprised me quite a bit. <laughs> and my, my brain was not uh, medium rare, was quite well done by that time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was a little bit, uh, you know, when your Google Maps says uh, recalculating, I was a little bit uh, surprised by A little bit like by, that. By you, that. You, were, so you were basically buffering, weren't you? You were buffering. Going <laughs> I was buff- yeah, 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 exactly. Buffering, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just before we, we move on from the, the Gravel World Championships, and, and I must say, Mate, you know, you're rather have known for a, a few years now, but... Um, your expansive detail in in your recollection is is wonderful. By the way, it's really you know it's almost like you're taking yourself right back and and it's quite often you'll speak to riders and they might have reasonable recollection, but but you seem to just be able to take yourself right back and almost relive it in a lot of detail as well. It's just it's just it's quite fascinating. It, it really really is. But a lot of people will be quite keen considering the fact that you're. Your preparation ended when you were about 10 for, for the Gravel World Championships. Um, what about the technical prep? Because clearly the discipline does favor the road riders a little bit more. It's more it's more akin to road than cross. It, it is a real, it's a beautiful hybrid, especially on a course like that. 
but still you've got to get the technical part right. Just to jump onto a gravel bike and, and win, you've got to have good legs. On that course, you had to be technically very, very good. And the way you obviously looked after yourself from an energy perspective, very different than you would in a road race because there's only set feed zones. You can't carry too much with you either, especially in terms of liquids. But just in terms of your bike and tire pressure, how much did you know yourself just from instinct? And how much did you have? Did you actually seek advice from any other gravel experts to get all that stuff right? Or was it purely, were you just comfortable doing all that sort of stuff yourself? So firstly, I think the discipline suits road riders because it's uh, such a high energy demand. Um, yeah. So those races, uh, like the gravel, I can speak for the gravel world championships because I, I did that and that was 6,000 kilojoules and that was um, my biggest uh, ride in the whole year. So wow. not even Liege or uh, Roubaix or any other uh, big, big classic can compare to that. Those races, Liege and Roubaix are just under, so they're between five and 6,000 and this was over 6,000 kilojoules and also it was in five hours. So that's different. So the average power is more, no? Yeah. So you would average uh, a lot, like quite significantly more than 300 watts average without zero on this course and in a classic like Flanders or uh, or Roubaix or, uh, or Liege, if we go hard from far out, then I would probably average from anywhere from 250 to 270 to 75 watts the most the biggest average that i ever had on a road bike in a road race was uh, in game webergen one year when it was super windy there was lots of crosswind from the start super bad weather and i ended up averaging um also i think 310 watts for five hours because it was 250 kilometers but we were super fast so wow. it was a similar type of effort but gravel was still a little bit just a little bit harder than that and also a little bit more even so I think if you compare the hours, uh, it, they were all pretty much similar. First, second, third, fourth, and fifth hour. And on the road, you always have variability. No, you have the first hour is maybe hard, then it settles down for two hours and it gets harder towards the end. Whereas here you had quite constant rhythm. We had a hard start because you fight also from to, to keep your position from the riders who have uh, not a good starting position. No, because even if they are not on a world tour level uh, physically um every like they can still go pretty hard for one hour and that's yeah. a big difference compared to cyclocross where you just go hard and super intense for one hour it's a different sport no? yeah. this is why it suits road riders better and then secondly as far as um mechanical part of things uh, is considered like the bike setup and the pressures and all that sort of stuff this i was lucky because um, Merida has some experience and then we had Philip Tishma, our head mechanic, who was uh, the the godfather of uh, my dropper seat post at Milan San Remo. Ah, okay, okay, here we go. <laughs> he, he took care of all the details, so the gearing and the tire choice and um, all the details, apart from pressure that I dialed in myself because uh, I do have some experience from Pavé and training on gravel roads and i did ask uh, other people that i knew have experience that ride gravel bikes a lot in their training or just do that so i decided to opt for uh, the highest pressure that i know would still give way if i hit a rock or something quite hard no 
similar pressure to what I would use to Roubaix, similar tire stiffness. So sure. Okay. It's obviously lower because the weight is more, but uh, yeah, similar to what I would go for in Roubaix, I, I choose for that. And I noticed that some other guys had significantly less pressure, so they would go for pressure around two bars for 40 millimeter tires, which is quite low. It's super fast on the rough surface, but I think if you, you end up hitting quite a few rocks and um, and sharp edges and then you risk you risk a flat because you cut the tire from uh, yeah from the tire gets caught between the rim and the the, the obstacle and you it's easy to cut so sure. it's dangerous to to use slow pressure on roads on bad roads like that and on single trails so fair fair bit of prep then and a lovely bit of expertise from your your, your, your Milan San Remo success, which is an, almost another podcast in itself. That has yeah. been talked about yeah. a lot, but but you've won. You've got another rainbow jersey. You've already been junior world champion on the road in 2012, 2013, under 23, when um, again, you were innovating with the style that's now been banned, of course, sat on the top tube. But third world championship jersey in gravel, what does that mean for you next year? Clearly, the road season is going to look pretty much the same. But Mate, you're going to want to ride at least one or two gravel events in the rainbow bands, aren't you? There's going to be a little yes. bit of pressure from somewhere to do that. Yes, I got flicked two times because I was uh, I won the junior world championships as a, obviously my second year as a junior, and uh, then the next year I was under 23, so I never rode in that jersey. Uh, I ended up I ended my season uh, right there, and then next year was the same. Uh, because from under 23s, I uh, moved on to being a professional on the World Tour level next year. Yeah. So I also never used or raced the jersey uh, that year. So the third time, uh, we say in Slovenian, there's a saying that says, uh, the donkey only goes on the ice one time. Uh, I went two times. So now the third time, I'm going to make sure <laughs> I'm going to make sure I allow myself to use the jersey and raise it uh, for a couple of events. So, uh, yeah, we will look into that now in the winter time. We have time. I think Merida will also be more than happy uh, with me uh, appearing in, uh, in those rainbow bands. And uh, I think gravel racing in general is becoming more and more popular. Yeah. And uh, I think even Gravel World Series uh, races will become increasingly popular in the future. I think it's a good addition, especially if they are able to show footage of the race. Uh, yeah. I think it was quite spectacular in the Worlds, although uh, they only had one month to prepare the whole race. So it was quite difficult for them. And I think they did a great job. And But they did a big mistake to not show the women's race, the yeah. women's footage. Yeah. If they had a little bit more money to, to do that, it would be great. And also to show the races from kilometer zero to the finish, because I think Milano Sanremo is maybe not necessarily the most interesting race to watch from the start yeah, to the finish. And he was a commentator who <laughs> <laughs> would, <know a> <laughs> would know a lot about that. But I think you would have a super easy job to commentate uh, a gravel race from, from the start to the finish yeah. because the start is quite intense and it it never gets boring. Uh, if it gets boring, for sure, there is one rider in uh, in the selection that gets a puncture or a crash. So uh, always something happening and uh, super interesting footage. You can make, you can design crazy beautiful parkours also because... Obviously, in road racing, you can only race on roads and they need to meet certain criteria. You can't pass in the most narrow and if it's the surface is bad, you can't probably um, design a Tour de France route on that road. But here you can literally go to the castle or 
You can do the loop around the lake, the beautiful lake, or you can use the wine, wine yards roads. It really opens up the whole realm of opportunities uh, for the organizers as well. You can pass the city center. You can probably pass inside a shopping mall if you wanted to. Yeah. So uh, yeah, quite a, a, a lot of opportunities for the future of this discipline. And uh, I think yeah, in the future, it will become increasingly uh, more important also. I think so. And obviously, I'd imagine you're going to get a nice rainbow bands bike as well. You'll have to let us know when you get that one because that's going to look pretty cool. At least you can go out training on that as well and and show that off a little bit down the local cafes in Monaco or something. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Right. We're going to go back even... You've already given us a sense of how you got into riding and it was, from what you said, riding with your friends like a lot of kids do. I mean, before my dad was a cyclist, but the first riding I was ever conscious of was riding around the streets um, on on a little bike doing little jumps but who at what point in your in your youth did you realize or did you decide that you wanted to take racing seriously and, and who Matty, at that particular time inspired you to do that as well was there anybody in your family anybody in any other sort of sport or what was your inspiration and your drive to pursue this I think the original uh, inspiration was uh, to escape the, the work I had to do at the farm at home. Right. I have an excuse <laughs> to not have to work every day. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, because my friends started to practice road cycling, uh, I wanted to hang out with them and this was uh, very convenient. And then I was practicing swimming for a little bit before I started cycling and it got increasingly harder with the logistics side of things because we, yeah, as I said, we had a farm and the swimming pool was 20 minutes drive from my home and the parents taking me and my sister two times a week was, uh, yeah, got a little bit hard and uh, road cycling was the only sport where I was uh, independent and self-sufficient. I could start from home, come back home on my own yep. uh, as a 12-year-old. So uh, it opened a whole new world to me. Um, I had to push for a little while with my parents. They didn't allow me straight away okay, uh, because they were afraid of, uh, yeah, of the traffic a little bit. I was 12 years old, so it's not like... Uh, yeah, I, they, they wanted to make sure I really, really wanted to do that before yep. they let me do that. And then, uh, yeah, they realized that it's a lost battle. I, I was so into it straight away that the, uh, they they wanted to give me the chance. You know, they they saw that I was enjoying uh, so much that uh, they they stopped to uh, <laughs> to try to convince me it's not probably the best uh, the best options there the best option there is no, uh, and and that was about it. And I didn't realize at the time that I this was actually a job that there was people who lived off that there was professionals um i realized that later on quite late and uh basically when i started to win uh, races as a, as a junior i realized okay maybe i can build a career from this but it was not an easy choice it was um i did spend some time uh, trying to figure out what I want in life. If I, because I, I, I also loved to go to school. I uh, wanted to pursue uh, a career, uh, a normal yeah, career path. Uh, sure. I wanted to go to university as a, as a 16, 17 year old when you need to decide um, what to do when you're 18. 
and it was not an easy decision for me to 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 try and be a professional so when i got the opportunity to sign my first professional contract i didn't rush it i took my time to sure. to think about what i want uh together with my parents and they yeah they said they are they said they told me that i'm free to do whatever i i feel like but they Especially my mother, I think she would have preferred if I chose differently. But uh, now, she yeah, she just sees me enjoying it so much that uh, she accepted it. No, yeah. um, but I was not. I was definitely not. Uh, yeah, uh, jumping to the roof uh, the first time I got the the offer of uh, being a professional. It was not like with some other colleagues. They they dream about that their whole lives. So I was a little bit more uh, cautious. Yeah, sure. But, but still clearly, grateful, but uh, but cautious. Yeah, and I think, but clearly, um, and hearing you speak, you, you are somebody who, who you think you clearly are somebody that thinks about a lot of different things. Of course, we all think, but but quite clearly, there's a a real focus to to what you do, and you clearly, from wanting to be educated and thinking about university, and speaking to you now, you like to understand how things work as well. The it's yeah. uh, un, the understanding of things in general, whatever you do in life. The more you understand something, the more joy it brings you and the more interesting it is. It's like understanding bike racing for somebody who's coming into it for the first time. It's quite complex. So many things going on at the same time. So many different impact factors, environmental factors that understanding it is, is quite beautiful. And um, I think what I want to touch on as well is, and I know you've been asked this a lot, but I'd like to explore it a little bit more, Mate. Is the interview following stage nineteen of the tour last year that you gave, and um, it's been lauded as one of them, one of the most wonderful interviews in sport of, of recent years, because you just opened up. And um, I wanted to explore a little bit more about the situation in sport where you find yourself in a winning position, but you might not necessarily think you're the strongest on the day, but you can still win and then feel slightly guilty about winning. And that is sport, especially cycling, because especially because of the way you can sit in a wheel, rest, recuperate, recover, outthink somebody, but not necessarily be the strongest. And you're the first person I've ever heard, actually, who said they felt a little bit of guilt about winning when you weren't, you didn't think you were the strongest. Explain that a little bit more, because you're talking about Casper Asgren, of course. We know he was going like a motorbike. You won the stage, but you just clearly had so much will and self-belief. And there are other reasons at play as well, which we'll go into a little bit later. But just explain that, because I think that's a fascinating thing to talk about. So this uh, can be uh, a whole podcast on its own, yeah. but uh, yeah. it goes, It goes. I think it all starts with uh, the values we have as human beings. So each of us has their own uh, values in life. Um, so things that they look up to and are important for them, for them such as, uh, I don't know, being fair, um, yeah, whatever, being grateful for what you do or respecting your family or trying to, wanting to beat someone, wanting to prove someone, um, yeah, something or, or whatever. And the values, I, the values I have, the values that my parents uh, transmitted to me uh, or other people that affected me, uh, that I grew up with uh, and people that I work now, that I work with now, um, yeah, they, they, they shape 
they shaped my values in a way that, uh, of course, you you always uh, do your best, and uh, professional sport is a very competitive environment, no? But a Tour de France is a is a special event. It lasts for more than three weeks, and uh, you spend uh, many hours on the road each day with. Uh, with the same people every day, with the same competitors, same staff members. So uh, one month is quite a long period of time. Yep. Uh, if we, if each of us, uh, now I speak about normal or normal people, people with other jobs, if we spent one month, one month with someone, even with our own family on a holiday or something, it creates a different uh, bond. Um, I imagine if 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 I spend one month with with uh, my own kids, I would probably have a different uh, feel for them after one month than I had on the first day, uh, and even more so if I spend time uh, with my friends. No, and after one month, you feel more uh, you relate more to what others feel as well, not okay. just your own feelings and your own ambitions. But also the others, the other people's feelings, the other people's ambitions, the other people's success, no. And in this Tour de France this year, I also felt on my own skin how big the gap between winning and coming in second or third is in cycling. I finished third on stage nine to put it on, and uh, that's, I think, from the. Performance uh, side of view, it's quite a big result, but uh, obviously you don't get a lot of exposure from it. Uh, stage winners take the most of the glory, and uh, stage 19 was the last opportunity to win a stage for the most of us. And yep. professional cycling got is cha- it changed in the last couple of years. It became more popular uh, in general public. I think it became uh, the exposure is bigger. The pressure from sponsor the, from sponsors is is bigger. There's more money involved. There's more uh, media attention, um, and because of this, because of all this, uh, we are all on a higher level. Also, we get looked after better. Uh, we train better. We have many more experts than we used to have eight years ago when I started to be sure. a professional. We have nutritionists. We have uh, we have physiotherapists. We have uh, yeah uh, many people who just look after our performance and try to make every detail better, so we can paddle faster. And everyone does this, so the sport is on a higher level and the competition is closer. No, so I think next year when we start Tour de France, from 180 riders who started, I think. Probably 120 of them, or at least 100 of them, can realistically win a stage. So wow. they have the physical and the mental and the technical abilities, everything, the team support, everything to win a stage. Wow. But only probably 12 or 15 of them we'll will win a stage because some people win more than one, no? Because when you start a role, when you start to be successful, you take your teammates with because you raise everyone's morale, no? Uh, especially your own. So that's I think that's this is why people uh, end up winning more than one time because they're they get more confidence, no? And sure. they make better decisions in those split seconds when it matters. And uh, yeah, 
This means that most people, most riders, even though they are capable of success, they don't get success, no? And uh, you just f- feel for this, no? Because you know everyone else is working just as hard as, as you did. And you wish that everyone's success, everyone's uh, work would be would be rewarded, but it's just not like that. And this is why you start to feel for them because maybe you spend time. I spent time with Casper in, in the group eight of the days before. Yeah. The days before this stage. Okay, he did win a stage. Uh, so this make it made it a little bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> but but for example, Ben didn't win a stage. Ben O'Connor didn't win a stage before and I saw him, he came in, he came to the tour as a GC contender. Uh, things didn't went uh, 100% in his way. Uh, he he dropped out of the GC battle and he refocused to, to try and win the stage. And he got really strong towards the end of the tour. Yeah. Uh, but still he missed out to win the stage. So... After working so hard to stay away from the chasing group, you 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 feel for those yeah for my for my two friends because you could you could say that they became they become your friends now yeah. because yeah you look after each other especially the days when you when you spend time together in the group eight or whatever it's not it's not an easy yeah it's not an easy. Yeah, it's quite complicated. <laughs> I, 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 un, I understand it. It's just nobody really that I'm aware of has expressed that because we talk about the uh, the joy of winning, the elation of winning, but we don't really talk about a winner having empathy with the people that they've beaten. There's friendships, which are different, and there's mutual respect, and that's what we see. But then empathy and showing empathy and the human side because you understand what it feels like, you, as you've just very eloquently put, Mate, you you understand fundamentally what it takes to perform at that level, but only the very few will ever win. But to acknowledge that is, I think, a very important thing that we could, a lot of people could learn from. You know, it doesn't take away the instinct that you have to win because you have to have almost, and it sounds bad, the, in, the instinct of an assassin, but at the same time, you yeah, have yeah. to have somebody with empathy at the same time. And that's, it's a very, very important human quality, if you ask me. But I think, uh, not I think, I know most people in professional peloton have this, you know. We talk about this uh, in Grupeto and when we meet outside racing in training, uh, most people feel for the others. Uh, yep. It's just that it's maybe hard to put into words. Exactly. 30 seconds after you've climbed off uh, your bike. So I was actually grateful that it happened. I think it inspired many people and that also makes me a happier person because I think the whole purpose of the sport, uh, sport definitely has its place in society. Um, I still feel like, uh, I still feel like uh, as professional athletes, uh, we are privileged, especially in cycling. We earn quite good money and uh, some people say we don't earn enough because we also suffer a lot, but I still think we, we need to be grateful every single day for this. Uh, I think our purpose is also to inspire people and then um, to move on from this i think we are also role models so yep. you need to think differently you need to think that yeah other people especially children they look up to you so you need to act responsibly and to be yeah to just be a good a good role model for them when they when they grow up and 
for them to do something good to do good something good for themselves and also to to give these emotions uh, to people who watch and follow racing i think it gives uh, it gives sport its place in in society and we actually uh, in in a, in this way we we also give something good back to to the people and also yeah then financially if you can also help the ones who are not as lucky as you are uh, i think it makes uh, the world a better place no for I, everyone i I, cer- I certainly think so i mean yeah wonderfully put and i again thank you for just elaborating a little bit on on that interview that's uh, that was yeah uh, just an indication of of how we all work really um, but it's a it's a it's a point of view or an emotion and a set of feelings that are very rarely talked about. But Rob, we're going to change tact a bit now. Now, you were born in Klans. Is it? Can you give me the right pronunciation, uh, Mate, of Klan? Klan. Okay. So you were born there. You lived a little bit further out in the mountains. But we are going to talk next a little bit about Klan because we have the Klan quiz. <laughs> yo, yo. Okay. You're ready? Uh, uh, Let's do it. Uh, uh, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Cran Quiz. Okay, that was our special little jingle made by Niall, who um, loves doing those. Um, marks out of 10 for the for the jingle? Nine. Solid nine. Nine, nine and a half. Solid nine and a half. Well done, Niall. Well done, Niall. So... Basically, we have, well, I've come up this morning, did some digging on the internet. I've got four questions for you about clan, okay? It's multiple okay. Ch- multiple choice. So don't worry. If you don't know the answer, you can take a guess, okay? So they're very broad ranges. Just one correct answer or there can be more? There's only one correct answer. Okay. So uh, multiple choice. There's basically four choices that I'll give you and you just choose the right answer. So, okay, you ready? Yeah, ready. You're feeling good. Right. Question number one. Okay. Back in the 1600s, um, sieve making, do you know what a sieve is? In in uh, Slovenian, it's sito. Yes. Yeah, okay. Sieve making was a very important industry, incredibly, in Kran, okay? But what animal's hair was made in its production? So the, the hair of an animal was used in a sito, and they were, and okay. they were exported up to the rest of Europe and I want to know the hair that makes the sieve or the sito. Was it A, the hair of a bear, B, the hair of a horse, C, the hair of a dog, or D, the hair of a boar, a wild pig? So bear, horse, dog, or boar hair used in the production of sieves in Kran. I think bear. You think bear. Is that your final answer? My final answer. It's incorrect. It's horsehair. <laughs> there we go. Incredibly. Horsehair. I looked it up. It's big in Japan as well. So horsehair sieves. A lot of sieves use just metal. But apparently, they could do very, very fine sieving with horsehair. There you go. We learn something every day. So you've still got a chance to, to pick things up. Okay. Question number two. Kran is twinned with 18 other towns and cities throughout the world, okay? Now, a couple of those have actually held the World Road Race Championships in cycling over over the years, okay? Now, which of these towns, which are twinned with Kran, 
hosted the 1987 World Road Race Championships, won by Stephen Roach. So all of these four cities and towns are twinned with Crans. One of them held the World Road Race Championships in 1987. Which oh one my God. is it? A, La Quillante in France. B, Colorado Springs in the USA. C, Villac in Austria. Or D, Rivoli in Italy. So now I'm uh, ashamed of myself because I'm terrible with cycling history, as you know from my second stage winner of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a pure guess here. Uh, a, so the town in France. It's not. It is not. Unfortunately, <laughs> the wrong answer. Now, now uh, there it, there are two. Colorado Springs, incredibly, twinned with Crowns, had the World Championships in 1986, won by Moreno Argentan, but it was Villac in Austria where Stephen Roach won his title in 1987. So there you uh, go. You okay. learn something every day. Okay, <laughs> right. Another history question here, and I think this is going to be a guess, unless you are very interested in this particular castle. You'll have to forgive my pronunciation, but... Kieselstein Castle in Kieselstein in uh, Kranz was built in what century? Was it the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th century, or the 14th century? Okay, so the 11th century is basically the 1200s. 12th century is the 1300s, etc. So how, when do you think that was built? El 11th century, I would say. 11th century. It was the 13th century, mate. Unfortunately, it was built <laughs> in 1256. We're on a strike here. Huh? We're, we're, so basically, you've got none right, but that's consistent. So that's not, there's not, yes. we've got to look at the positives here. Okay. Right. So the final question. Jesus Christ. The final, <laughs> the final question, Mate. Okay. There are two Irish pubs in Cran, okay? Oh my god, I know one. Okay, this could be this could be where you get a point, okay? The two Irish pubs in Cran. <laughs> one one of them is imaginatively named Irish Pub Cran, which is an incredible title. <laughs> okay. But what is the name of the other one? Okay, so one is called Irish Pub Cran. What is the name of the other Irish pub in Cran? Is it called Irish Pub O'Doherty's? Is it called Flanagan's Bar? Is it, is it called Irish Pub O'Callan's? Or is it Brennan's Bar? So A, Irish Pub O'Doherty's, B, Flanagan's Bar, C, Irish Pub O'Callan's, or D, Brennan's Bar? I've got no idea what you're talking about, so I'm taking a pure, <laughs> pure guess here. I have a 25% of a correct answer, so I will go with C. It's correct. Well done, mate. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't look good at all. It's, oh, my God. <laughs> mate, so we, uh, let's have a round of applause from our audience. Uh, there we go. I mean, these guys love you, mate. Good round of applause from the, uh, the live studio audience that I have in my uh, spare bedroom here. Uh, so, yeah, so you know the other one. So you, have you been to the uh, Irish pub Crans then? I've been because we used to uh, we used to get 
there when I was uh, maybe 16 or 17 year, years old because we met after school and went straight on to um, to our uh, training session in uh, in a gym not in a gym in a yeah whatever um, an indoor uh, hall where you could play uh, football or basketball or other sports uh, in the winter time we couldn't cycle so we had uh, training there and this is just next uh, next to it so it's not famous for getting tea. It's famous for <laughs> drinking, okay. but I've never been drinking there. So yeah. <laughs> I actually never been out drinking in Gran. I think so. Yeah. Maybe maybe you could start. Maybe and if you do go, just send us a picture from Irish pub O'Callan's. I can meet you for a pint there one day. Uh, anyway, uh, ride your hoe. Um, just just to, we can't not um, have a discussion with you. Um, it's a difficult subject to talk about a little bit about Gino. Okay, because it's. Yeah. It, um, Sadly, he passed away at the, in the Tour of Switzerland. But what I was intrigued with and, and wondered about is how the team and how how you guys coped during the Tour, when you had that success, you had three stage wins, wasn't it? You, you, Pelo won a stage, Wout won a stage, and then, and then you won a stage. And clearly winning at that sort of level, you know, the, the, these are not just career-making moments, that they're big moments in, a, in an individual's life that are important. But how did you balance that you're still in a, in a period in, in a state of mourning because of your loss of Gino, but you clearly had something special. There's an, an incredible bond in the team that allowed you still to be successful. So how did you balance that? How did you reconcile the fact that you, there were these moments of joy um, amidst a very difficult backdrop, which only happened just a few weeks before the start of the tour? Yeah, so I think to start with, I think the atmosphere in the team in general, it was always uh, really good. And this year was uh, as good as it's ever been, no? And uh, we were all pretty close, uh, really close to, to Gino. Me personally also, I was I was there when, uh, when he first won the stage in the Giro. I was actually a part of that winning breakaway and I made sure that we had a, as big of a gap as we could in the bottom of the last climb because normally that breakaway wouldn't make it because uh, I think it was Team Sky or Ineos then um, tried to to limit, to close the gap, to try and fight for the stage. And Gino uh, managed to, to win his first Grand Tour stage. And um, in general, Gino was probably the, the nicest person in the team. He was almost too good for this world, he always tried to help everyone and save the world and uh, help for a good cause. And I sometimes uh, looked up to this uh, behavior and I thought, I think personally, it's a little bit of a lost battle. And I looked up to Gino because of his belief that it's just uh, small steps that we each need to take I think even he knew that um, we can't reverse uh, global warming, for example, but he still felt strongly that uh, he needs to act as responsibly as he can no? and sure. help as much as he possibly can, even though it's a lost cause, no? yeah. uh, even though it's a lost battle. And uh, I think that's um, special. And most other people in the team also thought so. And it hurt a lot when we when we lost him. It hurt all of us. But um, the team even called a meeting uh, on the day, and they um, were trying to make it 
They were trying to provide help for anyone that needed it. They were trying to encourage that we talk to each other and we reassess the situation and we reassess the values that we have in life and the values that make us do this job because it's not... Uh, when something like this happens, it puts things back in... Uh, it puts things in perspective. And I think you need to reassess if what you are doing is still worth it or if you still want to carry on doing it. The team was really good with that, I feel. Um, I think many riders were actually through a difficult time uh, some days after the, the, the crash. But I think at the end, because of the way um, we, we, we talked a lot with each other and um, I think the idea prevailed that what happened was a terrible accident and um, not necessarily, of course it happened because of a race, but I think this is the same thing can happen in training or if you drive your car or if you walk down the stairs. It was sure. just a terrible coincidence that, uh, yeah, he crashed in that exact point uh, in, a, in that exact way and hurt, his, uh, yeah, hurt himself. Um, and I think it, the way we talked with others, it made us realize that, uh, what we want to do is carry on with our day-to-day -day routine and lives and, um, honor him with trying to, with giving our best, um, not just in the race, but every day, not just for ourselves, but also for him, because he, this was this opportunity to to work and to make sacrifice to make sacrifices was taken away from him so i think everyone even getting ready for the tour they made uh, one extra step to be ready to make sure to 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 honor gino I, I personally felt like if this opportunity was taken from him i wouldn't be able to live with myself if i didn't know that i did everything i could to, to be the best I can be. And uh, for example, in the stage, then even racing itself in the stage uh, where we finished at Puy de Dome, um, I would probably not even consider going uh, full gas to try and do a result, score a result there. Even if I was a part of that breakaway uh, last year or two years ago, I would probably ease off uh, in the bottom of the last camp and just cruise to the top because I, I would have considered myself having no chance sure. uh, to win the stage. But uh, that day, for example, I Gino came to my mind. I always thought about Gino when I was racing this year's Tour de France. And I wanted to to go all in to, to, to give my best to honor him because he was a climber and he would have to make an effort and uh, push himself to the limits on that day, if he was part of that breakaway because yeah. he was also selected for the Tour de France this year before the crash. And uh, I just, I almost won that stage, you know. I, I truly believed at one point that I it, it was possible uh, to win the stage uh, had I acted differently, uh, tactically, not physically. I was uh, pushing myself to the very limit, but tactically, if I followed Matteo when he made his move, uh, I could have won uh, or if maybe there was less collaboration in the back uh, sure. uh, chasing us I would also have a chance anyway it just shows that that third place in the stage 
would never happen if uh, if Gino's incident didn't happen. No? And I think it was similar with the other guys. And I think this tragedy brought us closer together and uh, yeah, brought the best out of every single one of us. It certainly did. And there was a wonderful spirit in the team. And I was obviously on the ground at the tour and could feel that. And I know the guys that the staff in your team as well and there was clearly a wonderful spirit it was it was it was powerful it was powerful but um somehow things like that can actually bring people close together and unify people so i just wanted hope you didn't mind me me talking about that because i think it's massively important that that obviously he's, he's never forgotten and, and again you speak so so eloquently mate about it you, you really really do um looking towards the future then <clears throat> mate we look at what you've achieved very broad isn't it you know you've won multiple week-long stage races, a stage in all of the Grand Tours now, um, world championships in, in gravel. What what are you looking for next season? Um, and how do you think next season, what have you brought from your previous 10 years of being a pro into next year, do you think? Um, the first goal, uh, and an important one, is um, Paris, our Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders. Uh, those are two races that um, I um, yeah was trying to pick in in the last three or four seasons and it never really worked out. I was fifth in Paris Roubaix in two thousand twenty one, uh, and I want to yeah I want to try and and win uh, one of those races one day. So next year that's a big big goal for me. Uh, and then secondly, yeah, then uh, as every year we have uh, the Tour de France. I want to go back there and um, do well again yeah. together with the team. We have Olympic Games after the Tour, so that's different yeah, yeah. To, to other years. And then uh, the World Championships. Um, the course is really hard, but uh, I I think it's it's the time to unite together with today and try to to pursue a dream together so uh we'll see about that you haven't got and, that you've got uh, a pretty decent team haven't you <laughs> yes <laughs> wow uh, and uh, yeah. and uh, yeah it will it will end at one point but uh, we need to make the most of it uh, until it lasts no yeah uh, I think what's happening with Slovenian cycling is similar to what happened with, uh, I don't know, Irish cycling when Sean Kelly was uh, was winning or with Slovakian cycling when Peter Sagan was winning. It's just that it's more than one of us at the same time. So that's quite special. And yeah, uh, it's a good time to be a Slovenian uh, cycling fan. No? It certainly is. Um, and then apart from this, I would like to come back to, to the Real World Championships to defend my title and take part in some uh, couple of other gravel events uh, throughout the season. Cool. And just and just one one last question before we wrap things up, because I could easily go on for several hours talking to you. Such an interesting chat, mate. You really, really are. But you're a rider. You're only 28 years of age, am I right? 28 years of age now, so... Yes, 29 next week. 29 next week. Okay, well, many no, happy... No, this week. Sorry, this week. This week? <laughs> what, what, what day? Time runs fast. What, what? 19. Oh, right. Okay, well, many happy returns yeah. for that. Um, but you talked about it right at the beginning of our conversation. You talked about the way the sport has changed. And and it's one of the questions that I always ask people who come up with pros who come on my podcast, because it's what I'm fascinated with is this, the way the sport has changed 
2020 really, or 2021 COVID years, it looked like we were running on borrowed time with a condensed season, everybody trying to prove themselves. And then in conjunction with all the other reasons that you talked about, the way the sport has raised has raised itself because of all the training, nutrition, our understanding of, of the sport, let alone the technological side of it. And your really interesting point about the fact that you think next year, 100 riders could potentially have the capacity to win a stage. Uh, that's incredible. And that illustrates how deep the sport is. But from your perspective, how have you managed to adapt to that? Because you've gone straight through that phase. You've, you've been, you were racing and winning a, a Grand Tour stages in 2018. Um, you had your first Grand Tour in 2016. You're now out the other side. And interestingly, I, I was talking to Matteo Jorgensen a few weeks ago, and he said that because of the new style of racing, you really, it's not just the racing that's changed, it's everything else around it has to, your recovery, mm -hmm. the way you focus. You, you know, you, because of the workload in each race now, it, that affects your kind of calendar. So can you just sum up as best you can what, how it's changed the way that you prepare and, and actually race yourself? Because it is, it's, I wouldn't say unrecognizable, but the sport is so different now, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the biggest change is uh, that the whole, this, this new level of racing, this, uh, the, the faster materials made the, the biggest difference and the nutrition because when I turned professional, we were told to eat 60 grams of carbs per hour, and that was the maximum. And now we eat in the classics more than 120 grams of carbs per, per hour. And that's twice the amount of fuel that you take in that can take you a lot further and a lot, you can spend a lot more energy uh, racing. So that's the biggest change. And this has all led to racing being closer. So uh, more riders can realistically aim to, to win the race. And because the materials are so faster, um, sitting and also because of the rotary infrastructure a little bit, um, it's increasingly, the racing is becoming increasingly uh, more intense. No, it's not the right word. So before it was more like marathon running. Okay. You could do it on a, not quite, but you could do it if you were strong, you ended up in the front at the end. Yeah. It was more like gravel racing. So if you, you just was even big amount of average power and you ended up being at the front. Okay. No? Didn't matter if you were in the back or in the front, which position you were in. Didn't matter if you were good at sitting in the wheels or not so much. Didn't matter if you were efficient or not in the, in the peloton. It kind of just naturally just, just evolved the peloton. It's just yeah, a natural yeah. selection. Because at 40k an hour, uh, if you sit on the wheel, it saves you, I don't know, 30% of energy. If you sit on the wheel at 60k an hour, it saves you 85% of energy, no? So that's a significant increase. And it's the same in the climb. Before, in the climb, say you had a 6% climb in the Tour de France. After 10 minutes of a climb, because the pace was so high, it was only, and the difference in level was more. There was less riders that were in perfect shape. Uh, there was maybe after 10 minutes only eight of them left so that's a limited amount of how much you save sitting on the wheels and the speed was less so they went 22 kilometers an hour with eight of them so that's if you analyze the file of each single person in that group they would be similar now you have a group of 30 riders moving up the same mountain with a bigger speed so you it's a significantly bigger difference of where you sit within yeah. that group no? yeah it's not the same effort and the whole racing is uh, getting more and more um, in that direction. No, So there is more racing involved, less strength, less pure strength, 
and pure power that makes difference. Yeah. More racing, more um, more fighting for position. And this is also because of the road infrastructure. Because before, there was no roundabouts, no traffic islands, uh, no narrowings, or not as many. No, now you have narrowings, traffic islands, uh, small roads, big roads, uh, roundabouts, everything. And it stretches out the peloton and it makes a big difference from the ones who are chasing from the back or the ones who sit at the front and do even tempo, which spikes more and hurts you more. Yeah. You lose less glycogen, no? By doing, even though the, their average power is maybe, the average power of uh, a leader team in the Tour de France who are pulling the peloton or controlling the race is more, of course. But I think their glycogen stores get less depleted because they spike less. Sure. Because what kills you is all the spikes, no? All the yeah. surges in power that uh, every time you accelerate, you need to you need to make, no? To hold the wheel, and then holding the wheel is increasingly more important because you have more draft. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, everything's changed um, because of this intensity. The preparation uh, has changed. Uh, you can do uh, on a super good level. You can do less race days, and you need to train more for those. So you need to still train. Very aerobically to get ready for races, but you can't. Races are getting so intense that you can't uh, get fitness in the race. If you don't turn up to the race being going well, it will only hurt you. No, yeah, it won't help you necessarily to be on a higher level. If you get there and you're already going well, it might help you your fitness. No, sure, but uh, yeah, it's changed. It's changed. Uh, the teams are looking more and more into that and uh, trying to adapt and uh, the riders also individually. Uh, everything's, everything's changing rapidly and I think it will change even more in the future. I think in the future, I think, I guess in five years time, the biggest teams will have all riders living in the same area, uh, providing uh, full-time support, uh, physios even during um, times away from races and training camps. Uh, they will travel together to the races uh, in a more isolated manner, maybe to avoid uh, illnesses using public transport or uh, just to be more efficient with the logistics, uh, providing support also in training in case something breaks down on your bike or uh, you need a bottle and you're, I don't know, two hours away from the first uh, gas station or whatever. Sure. This will all change the future. I already uh, pay for someone to follow to follow my training rides. Uh, so I always have a full-time support and that's also affected me in the last two years. I think I I became a better athlete because of that. No? Wow. Uh, because also earning more money allows you to employ more people. No, you yeah. have, It's just getting your support uh, mechanism around you. And, and these, exactly. And the, yeah, and these these sort of details, and I won't, I'm, I'm going to say it, marginal gains, but that, it's an old word, but it essentially is. It's just as you move forward and adapt if you do have access to resources that are even just help a little bit, they they all accumulate, don't they? And, but also within what you just talked about, and it'll be my last point before I let you go. So thank you for being so generous with your time. My last point is we're seeing the races because of all the reasons you talked about and teams trying to adapt and therefore anticipate the races are opening up increasingly earlier, which makes it really entertaining for me as a commentator. I can't predict as much, but it's thrillingly entertaining for the fans, hard for the riders but it seems quite often like it's it's chaos. Do you do you do you do you enjoy that? So I guess when it's chaos, there's teams have to have plans, maybe more plans than than they used to, because they don't know what's going to happen. 
but it ha- then you really have to think as a rider, don't you? You have to think more instinctively, strategically. And I, I, I'd imagine, and I might be wrong, but I'd imagine you enjoy that, this new chaos that we're seeing. Yeah. Of course, it plays into advantage of a rider like me. I'm not necessarily always physically the strongest, even though I'm on a, I was on a very good level this year on a couple of occasions, but still there are some individuals who are maybe even stronger. But uh, racing, evolving the way it is, I can use my um, racecraft more. I can use my probably better split-second decisions compared to some other riders, being more efficient uh, inside the peloton, saving more energy because I know the roads maybe, because I'm more experienced, because I try to predict what other riders around me are trying to do, what they're trying to move, if they, yeah, which, which, team is going to close which side of the road you know you try to sure. predict all that and react and if you can think more if you can analyze more it plays into your favor there's more crazecraft involved than pure strength like eight years ago no or 10 years ago or 30 years ago yeah um so yeah uh, it's i won't say it's uh, becoming like a formula one where the strategy is probably uh the, the most important thing but it's it's definitely there's more racing and less uh, just measuring of physical ability. Sure, sure. Well, I can't wait. Well, first, I can't wait to see you in your jersey on your new bike, out training or on a gravel event next year. Uh, thanks very much, Matej, for being so generous. Um, it's been a really wonderful conversation. We're nearly an hour and 12, an hour and 15 minutes in. Um, and well done on the quiz. Okay, it's only 25%, but it's still a re- pretty reasonable <laughs> quiz. That's the no. only area that maybe you need to potentially improve on. But anyway, we can talk about that again. But Mate, good luck next year, mate. Uh, our paths will cross. I'll see you at one of the Grand Tours, no doubt, on the road. Uh, you look after yourself and take care. And thanks very much. Thank you. Enjoy the off-season. Will do. Awesome stuff there from Mate. He speaks so well. What a wonderful guy. And what a lovely tribute to Gino too. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Noel Gaffney on behalf of Hot Chili. Thanks to Perry Apgwinith for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to any donkeys you might see who are about to walk on the ice for a second time. You have to love Slovenian analogies. Cheers, stay safe and goodbye.